Good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. The, t- the teaching text for today is Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You had heard it that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and this time together. Please bless our mom and our dad. And we lift out our mom. Just help her and all of us to know you more. And help us to have a good day, good Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Rock at the end said, Happy Mother's Day and goodbye. So, happy Mother's Day. Thanks to my friend, Rock, for reading our teaching text today. Friends, wherever you are in the world, I hope that you are uh, doing well. I hope that uh, you're you're taking care of yourself, doing some self-care, practicing some emotionally healthy practices, and just giving yourself and the people around you tons of grace. I hope that you're well. Maybe you're tuning in this morning and you just feel worn down or beaten up by life. Uh, I don't know if like you're seeing the names of tons of people that you know or you're kind of like logging on and you can tell like there's a party that you've not been in in the past and you want to make connections uh, in, in the church or with other people, you're feeling lonely. Uh, for all of you who end up watching this message and being a part of the service, I just want to let you know uh, that I don't think it's a mistake that you're here and listening with our community. Uh, As I say a million times, the church is not the building, it's not the service, it's not the preacher. Uh, The church is this community of people. And so I just want to say to each and every one of you, whether you are a regular and a fixture in our church community, or whether you're just kind of dipping your toe in the water, uh, that in the name of Jesus Christ, you are welcome, and you are wanted, and you are loved, and there is tons of space uh, for you to find a place of belonging in God's family. So uh, I'm really glad that you're watching. And I hope that before too long, we can get back together uh, in person. If you don't know, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most epic teaching. It's something that has been studied by people of all faiths for millennia. We find it in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And in the middle of this conversation, in many conversations about the Bible, we find that there's often a tension that comes up where you're in Bible study, you're with your apprentice group, you're just conversationally processing Scripture with other people, and there will be a passage of Scripture that you read. Uh, and be an, an admonition to obey something, and you find yourself just keenly aware of how much you do not obey this, or how different uh, the Scripture looks from your own life. And you'll be inclined to beat yourself up for it. Or maybe you'll go to church and you feel like other people or preachers are beating you up for the ways in which your life does not match up uh, with Scripture. It's a tension between the things that we say that we believe and how we behave. 
or it's the tension that pops up in what's going on in our heart and what's going on in our lives. And sometimes in these moments where we're aware of this disparity between what we believe and how we behave, uh, people will console us by saying something like, well, listen, God is not expecting perfection of you. Or you'll defend yourself when you feel beaten up by somebody else and say, God is not expecting a perfection of me. God's not asking me to be perfect. Which makes a ton of sense experientially because we all know ourselves well enough to admit that we're not perfect. We have proven time and again, we have empirical data to demonstrate we are not perfect. In fact, far from it, we are deeply flawed and broken human beings. But aside from whether it's possible to be perfect, I think it's worth asking anytime we come to the Scriptures, like, is it true, this assertion that we're making about what God says about us? Is it true that God is not asking us to be perfect? And it really throws a wrench in our thinking on this topic when we come across a passage like Rock just read in Matthew 5, verse 48, where Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're like, ah, it's right there. It actually says the thing that we've been saying God does not expect of us. There it is. Be perfect. And not only is it asking, is Jesus asking for perfection, he's speaking in the imperative voice here saying, I'm demanding, I'm instructing you, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And for those of us who know that we cannot and will not attain perfection on our own, we have to ask, okay, it's true because these words have come to us from Jesus, but what on earth do we do with this truth, uh, with these true words and how do we reconcile this admonition to be perfect with the reality of grace that we also find in the new testament i think a a good question to ask would be is god demanding perfection in order to save us that might be a clarifying question to ask because when we ask that is he asking perfection on the front end to be willing to enter into a relationship with us the answer is absolutely not We know from our lives and we know in Scripture, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own ways. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one will be declared righteous by obedience to the law. If perfection were a prerequisite for God to love us, all of us would have have totally missed the opportunity. We'd be up a creek without a paddle. And so in that sense, no, God is not asking you to be perfect in order for him to save you or in order for him to love you 100%. In spite of this verse commanding perfection, the Sermon on the Mount actually teaches us the very same principle if you pay attention to how this sermon began that we looked back in January when Jesus began the first beatitude and he said, blessings on the poor in spirit, which doesn't just mean folks who are humble. It's blessings on the spiritually bankrupt. Remember I told the story about the, the poor person who's homeless in Tulsa who had been living in a drainage, uh, uh, like a drainage, uh, I don't know what you call it, pipe thing. And the little house that this person had made had burned down and the police had, the fire had to respond to this, uh, this like home catching on fire in a, in a tube, in a pipe. That person is poor in spirit on that day. Jesus says, blessings on all of you who are poor in spirit, all of you who are spiritually and emotionally run down and worn thin and and exhausted, blessings on you. 
The second person of the Trinity says to those of you who find yourself in that situation, desperately in need of grace, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Your only qualification is to be destitute and poor and impoverished in spirit. The Sermon on the Mount begins with this message of grace, but it ends with this invitation toward growth, this invitation toward perfection, or I I prefer the word maturity, this, this invitation toward being fully realized. And there's a nuanced relationship between the grace that we receive in Jesus Christ and this invitation that we get uh, toward growth. And it's, and it's a dynamic that's really important for us to understand uh, rightly, to get it right. And it's more complicated than, than just like a simple spectrum of like grace on the one hand and, and growth on the other. Now the surprising thing is this spectrum here is not popping up on the computer. It actually is existing right in front of me, like I'm holding it up. I'm holding it up right there. Uh, but this spectrum is, is, doesn't adequately demonstrate the complexity of the relationship between grace and growth. Because where would you like put on a map? Here's the appropriate place that a Christian should land in the relationship between grace and growth. Because the further you move toward grace, the more you move away from growth. And the more you move toward growth, the farther you move away from grace. And our lives are to, are to be uh, like, like, uh, explained by the presence of the grace of God in our lives. Not half of the grace that God is willing to offer us, but our lives are meant to be immersed in the grace of God. Yet we don't want to have to choose between grace and growth. We desperately need both. Apart from the grace of God at work in our lives, there is no health in us, there is no opportunity for wellness, and growth is the evidence of God's grace at work in our lives because healthy things grow. God wants to love us into health. So if it's not this either-or kind of thing, uh, what's another way that we could depict the relationship between grace and growth, another way of trying to get our minds around us? So we might want to use something a, a little bit like this. Well, on the one axis here, we have uh, high and low degrees of grace. You can have a lot of grace. We're, 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 we're totally clear like we are dependent, utterly dependent on the grace of God in our lives, a high emphasis on grace. Uh, some people might have a really low emphasis on grace. Uh, on the other axis, we have this, like, this thing about, gr- about growth. We could have high growth on the one hand and low growth on the other. I'm kind of like a weatherman right now trying to figure out how to go do my appropriate directions, okay? Hang with me, though. We have high grace, low grace. We have high growth, low growth. Well, as we read the New Testament, um, we, we see this grace-saturated environment mixed with this invitation toward high growth. And the result of living in a grace-saturated environment where we're being challenged to live in growth is, is a trajectory toward maturity. If we live in a high grace atmosphere with an invitation toward growth, the result of this can be maturity in our lives. And this is where we all want to live. It's, maturity is one of the key words for us this year. Uh, Colossians 1.28, Paul said, He is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone fully mature in Christ. The goal is not for a mature elite within the church. The goal of the Apostle Paul was to have everyone mature, fully mature in Christ. A recipe for maturity is a grace-saturated environment with an invitation toward 
growth. What happens, on the other hand, if you have a high growth environment, a lot of challenge, but you have really low grace? What does that look like in a person's life? That turns into legalism. Legalism. If you have high challenge, it's all about your comportment, your behavior, the stuff that you do, and there's no grace for screw-ups. That is going to be a recipe for legalism or for self-righteousness. And, and it's a recipe also for just being dispirited and discouraged. And maybe at times you've felt like you've been in a church where it was all about your behavior and there was no grace. And just in paying attention to the stories of my friends, I know that people who grow up in churches where it's all about behavior and there's no emphasis on grace, those people either end up uh, leaving the faith, uh, beating themselves up in like uh, really painful ways. They end up being mean or self-righteous or they just take themselves out of a growth environment altogether and they'll go to a church at the opposite end of the spectrum that's all about grace with little challenge for us to grow. If you have high growth, high grace, it leads toward maturity. If you have high growth, low grace, it leads to legalism. Well, what happens if you have low of both? If you have low grace and low, low challenge to grow, that leads to self-loathing. You're not growing and you hate yourself for not growing. You're beating yourself up for it. That's a really terrible a place to live. It's a, it's a discouraging place to live if you have low grace or no grace for yourself and you also have low invitation toward growth you you tend towards self-loathing you just despise yourself well, what about this last quadrant if you have high grace but there's no growth no challenge no one's pushing you to live into all you're meant to be in christ what do you get if you have high grace and no growth or low emphasis on growth you get laziness you get where you're, you're pampered and you're affirmed and you're loved, but you're a spiritual baby. Uh, your, your muscles atrophy in the absence of some kind of pushback or challenge. We actually need challenge in our, in our bodies. Our biology needs a kind of resistance in order to be strong. And in the absence of resistance or in the absence of this invitation toward growth where we're saturated in grace but we're not challenged, we become lazy. Now, when people are really anxious, when people are really anxious, we find there's this, like, the, the, a preference for either-or situations. So this whole situation, which some of you who like Microsoft Excel are probably just loving, and some of you are like, tell me a story instead. Uh, anxious people prefer either-or scenarios. And they would prefer to have, like, let's go all grace or let's go all growth. And so the people who are advocating for all grace are yelling at the other group, calling them legalistic. And the group that's all about growth, like responsibility and maturity, are like all about growth, are, are calling the people who are all grace lazy. But it's a false choice to go between uh, laziness on the one hand and legalism on the other. This is a false choice. We don't have to pick one or the other. Grace and the invitation toward growth are interdependent. Uh, we need both of those things. As Christians, we're meant to live in a grace-saturated environment, knowing that we are truly safe in the kingdom of God, knowing that we are truly loved uh, by Jesus, that we're truly welcomed and wanted in the community of faith without judgment, apart from how well we perform or obey 
or keep things together. We need high grace and we need high growth. We can go ahead and take that off, Neem. And as Christians, we're all invited to live into this place where we're like becoming all that we were meant to be in Christ. We need grace. We need growth. And so we're challenged and we're pushed and we're bidden to grow and to become well and to get strong. And so we tell each other the truth. We read scripture with an eye toward obedience. We fully embrace the paradox of this high growth, high grace life in Christ. And we see this interplay between grace and growth so clearly in one of the keystone passages in the Bible about grace, coming from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul said, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, His handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us. We have been saved by grace, not by our perfection. And yet as a result of that grace, we are empowered to grow and to do the works, the the tasks that God has given for us in advance to do. The Sermon on the Mount begins with this blessing on the poor in spirit and the rundown and those who can't help themselves. And it ends in chapter 5 with verse 48 saying, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, in few places in in the New Testament and in the Christian life can we see a vision of maturity or Christian perfection more clearly than in how Christians treat the people who hate their guts, how Christians respond to those people that persecute them. This was verse 43 that Rock read for us. He said, you've heard that it was said, love your friends, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. Now, now Jesus has done this a handful of times in the Sermon on the Mount. He's demonstrated the prevailing logic, or he's quoted parts of the Old Testament, or we have a blend of it here. And in just a moment, he's going to offer a word of contrast. Jesus said that the law is summed up in this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we see this this command by God to hate people, uh, to hate our enemies. What Jesus is doing here is is citing the common logic of most people. God did say to love your neighbor, but the corollary, the logical corollary for most people is, and you hate your enemy. You hate the people who hate you. Now, this is not something anyone needs to be commanded to do. We naturally dislike the people that we dislike, and we naturally tend to like the people who like us or the people who love us. There's no need to command us with regard to something that's already natural for us to do. But Jesus, who is full of grace and who does not shrink away from urging his people toward growth, toward maturity, toward perfection, as verse 48 says, invites us to take on not our first nature, which is inclined to love those who love us and hate those who hate us. He invites us to take on a second nature, or a renewed nature. And so he says by way of contrast in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I I wonder how many of you would say you have an enemy or an arch nemesis. I had an arch nemesis when I was a child, but we're not going to get into that right now. I I would guess that few of us would say, would go to the extreme of saying, I have an enemy. Like, I have someone who, like, I hate their guts and they hate mine. 
but uh, whether you would say you have an enemy or not, I don't think it's a stretch, and we'll see in the rest of this passage, to use this term enemy just to refer to anyone with whom we have a strained relationship. Love those with whom you have a strained relationship, and there are varying degrees of strain which could get toward true hatred and animosity and an enemy kind of relationship. Love the people with whom you have a strained relationship. In this sense, enemy could be someone who lives under your roof. Enemy could be someone who lives on your street or someone who, uh, you know, you, ha- you both have kids at the same elementary school or high school. It could be a teacher. It could be a neighbor. It could be uh, someone who's on the other side of the cubicle wall or someone who's in the corner office who you feel like has treated you poorly. It could be someone who's no longer living. They have died and they are still your enemy in your heart. Like your hatred of them or your distaste of them is still very much alive. Who is that person or who are that group of people be for you? And I'm going to pry a little bit more in a couple of minutes, but I wonder, could it be a a, a politician? Could it be a political party? Could it be someone, like the idea of a person or celebrity, and you have just this habit of hatred toward them, and they don't even know who you are. Who are those people with whom you have a strained relationship? How do Christians behave toward all those with whom we have a strained relationship? Jesus says we strive to love them, And we demonstrate that love by praying for them. You know, praying is like uh, vouching for. If you pray for someone else, intercessory prayer, you're vouching for them. You're pulling for them. If I'm like, I see two of my friends in conflict and I go represent friend A to friend B, I'm praying for them. I'm vouching for them. I want to see the good for them. And similarly, like Jesus says, pray, vouch for, go to bat for the people with whom you have a strained relationship, for your enemies. And to be able to have the presence of mind to ignore your first nature, which is informing you to hate those people, and to take on that second nature, that renewed nature that is characterized by love and demonstrated by praying for them, requires, as we talked about, an inner muchness of spirit like an inner renewal so that God is just, the Spirit of God is flowing out of us like streams of living water and not just a half-empty cup on the inside of us. To live in that second renewed nature requires a kind of poise and magnanimity and a, willing to, a willingness to embrace this paradoxical kind of life as a Sermon on the Mount Christian. And to live that way toward those you hate requires a real transformation. But it's, it's not something that American Christians talk about very much. But enemy love is the way of Jesus. Enemy love is the way of Jesus. It's what we do in our family, our Christian family. As Jesus was on the cross, having been abandoned by his disciples, many of them, and being mocked by the Roman soldiers, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, the first martyr, we see this in the book of Acts, does a similar thing. As he's being stoned, and those onlookers said he had the face like the face of an angel, he was praying for those who were inflicting him with pain and ultimately death. Enemy love is the way of Jesus. But what does it actually mean to love your enemy? Because surely that's different than liking them. Because like it's like loving is one thing. But liking them when you don't even want to be in the same room or breathe the same oxygen as them is is a very difficult thing 
to ask. I mean, would we say that Jesus liked Pilate? <laughs> would we say that Jesus liked the Sanhedrin who ordered his death? Uh, Dale Bruner, who is one of my favorite commentators on Matthew, had a, a lot to say about this. He said, A frequent dodge must be noted, a dodge being a way that we try to exempt ourselves from trying to obey this passage of Scripture. It's sometimes said that the agape, unconditional love commanded by Jesus is not eros love, love that we feel on the inside. That agape means to wish well, but it does not mean to feel affection for. By this distinction between agape and eros, some disciples allow themselves to continue heartily to dislike their enemies, to feel no affection for them at all, and yet by a kind of steel, cool stoicism to believe that they are keeping Jesus' command. We are not to be satisfied that we've kept Jesus' agape command when we treat our enemies with semi-civility, when we're polite, when we're just like, like refrain from unleashing our aggression on them, is that the kind of love that Jesus wanted? Brunner would say uh, we should not be satisfied with merely treating them with semi-civility. Instead, we are to pray and then to pray some more until we feel something of God's love for problem people. And before the holiness of God, in other words, if we're really being honest here, are not all of us, even the best disciples, really problem people? Granted, a miracle is required for agape love to happen, but God is good at miracles. God doesn't want us to just tolerate those with whom we have a strained relationship. He wants to give us a share of God's love for those people and to begin to feel it within ourselves. When we're learning to practice enemy love, uh, it, it's too steep a hill to climb to try to just conjure up feelings of love for someone that you really don't like. And so in keeping with, with Bruner's synopsis here, his, his, his teaching here, part of the prayer has to become when thinking about a person or group of people that we hate or merely with whom we have a strained relationship, our prayer must become, Lord, give me a measure of your love. Help me to see this person that I hate as one for whom Jesus died. Help me to see this person as a person that you love, to see them as you see. And it may feel justified. They may have done atrocities to you or to people that you love. It may feel justified to hate them as if they are a kind of subhuman but learning to love people and to see people through the lens of love that God has for all people uh, is, is the way of Jesus, and it humanizes them, but it also humanizes us in the process, remembering that we are not always or often that lovely or that lovable. And there was a time, as Titus chapter 3 says, that we were enemies of God, hating God and hating each other. One of the things that struck me in studying the passage from last week is there was no explanation for why we were to go the second mile and turn the cheek. But here, in this final teaching from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, we have an explanation about why we, we, we act in this paradoxical way, why we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It's in verse 45, 545. It says, Behave in this way, why? That you may be called children of your Father in heaven. And then listen to this interesting explanation. It says, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus sees God's love for enemies in the natural world. It's like Romans 1 talks about, like, like the, the natural world itself bearing witness to the nature of God. Jesus sees the, God's love of enemies in the natural world in the way that God provides rain and sunshine and plant life and animal life to nourish us to good people and to wicked people alike. God prays for those who set themselves up as God's enemy. God provides for those who don't know that he exists or who hate his guts. And when we strive to do the same, to show love impartially, even to the people with whom we have a strained relationship or hate, when we do that, we bear a family resemblance to the world. Say, this is what my father is like. This is what we do in our family. And to bring chapter 5 full circle as we seek to obey the seventh command of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to live into the blessings of the seventh beatitude. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Other people will see us living in these pacifying, peacemaking ways and say, they remind me of God who loves enemies and advocates for those who would mock him and those who would persecute him. You know, there's a really powerful compliment or uh, way of framing encouragement from one Christian to another. Uh, my friend Jimmy Doyle, who was my teacher at Metro Christian, uh, I really heard him use this language for the first time. When he observed people in our school behaving like this, behaving in Sermon on the Mount kind of ways, he would just say to them, hey, I see Jesus in you. He would remind them, I see the family resemblance of God. I see your brotherhood with Jesus in the way that you are living and behaving, in the way that you're opting into that second nature, that renewed nature way of living, way of telling each other, I see the mark of God in your life. And I would just encourage you, as we're this year uh, trying to practice living as Sermon on the Mount Christians, to affirm each other when we see folks trying to live in this renewed nature, and see folks trying to adopt the posture of Jesus toward enemies and to those with whom we have a strained relationship, as we try to, like, try to rein in our lust or our anger or try to practice telling the truth even when it's costly, when we see each other living in Sermon on the Mount ways to say in private, brother, sister, I see Jesus in you. Those who are peacemakers will be called children of God. I see the work of God in you. I would imagine that for some people, uh, this sermon doesn't sound all that challenging. And honestly, if most of the Sermon on the Mount sermons have not been all that challenging, it could be because you're not listening. I mean, every man in the church should be offended for being called an adulterer. Because Jesus said, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. All of us should wrestle and be uncomfortable with that. All of us who struggle should be uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus calls us murderers when we have anger in our heart toward our brother and sister. So if this sermon to you and the, the, the instruction about loving your enemy feels like, yeah, I generally have that down, you're probably not personalizing this scripture enough. You're probably not filling in the blank with a person like, oh, God doesn't want to scrutinize how I feel about that person. What if the sentence said something like this to you? But I tell you, 
love Republicans. I tell you, love Democrats. Some of you are about to switch off. Love Hillary. And then the other half's going to switch off. Love Donald. Until like there's a kind of like revulsion to the command, we've not personalized it. The person that wronged you when you were a child, now we're in sensitive territory. The person who hurt the person that you love, oh gosh, man, help us, Lord. Until there's a kind of revulsion, we've probably not personalized it. But I will tell you, in renewing our nature and giving us this second nature, there is no relationship we have that should be withheld from the loving scrutiny and healing of Jesus Christ. And there are folks who, like you, have really advanced in your relationship with Jesus. But there are relationships. It could be with the church. It could be with a pastor. It could be with a parent. It could be with a friend. If you're, if you're keeping a relationship back from the scrutiny and the healing of Jesus, you're missing out. And your growth as a follower of Jesus is going to be stunted. Now, you may say in objection, John, you don't know what the person did. And I would just say, like, 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 think about all that we've done to God and what God has done for us. It's because we know that Jesus loved us first, apart from our action and in spite of our rebellion, that we're given this grace. It's why we have to be saturated in a grace-filled environment to begin to take steps with the help of the Holy Spirit toward growth. If this teaching doesn't sound that big of a deal, you're probably not personalizing it. Um, my friend Adam Peterson, who is a teacher at Jinx High School eight years ago, Adam, who everybody calls Petey, tweeted this. He said, your job is to love them, so start by just not hating them. And then he said, things I think Jesus would say. Adam, I remembered that for eight years because I think you were spot on. Your job is to love them, so start by just not hating them. If all this instruction about loving our enemies, on the other hand, sounds like way too difficult, way too much, Jesus gives us this way of, of simplifying the teaching and giving us a training plan to work our way into obedience. I watched this documentary with Emily a handful of weeks ago called Free Solo. Probably tons of you have watched it. Someone who was like climbing without ropes or harnesses. Um, oh, I'm forgetting what it was in California. And uh, he climbed this massive, massive mountain without any harnesses. He had to train his way there. To begin to forgive the person who wronged you in that way is probably more than you can bear right now. And so Jesus gives us this, this way of simplifying the instruction to begin training our way toward obedience, toward enemy love. And it's interestingly, it shows up by, by treating with kindness just the people who are outside of your friend circle. Uh, people who are strangers, people with whom you don't have a relationship at all. We see this in verse 47. He said, look, if you greet only your own people, uh, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Now, greeting someone is so easy, but Jesus says greeting the people you don't know, greeting the stranger, uh, the person just outside of your circle is a way of beginning to train yourself to build a capacity where at some point you can practice enemy love. I want to tell you that without exception, every person you know no matter how popular they are, no matter how connected you think they are, 
Every person you know has this intrinsic need and desire to be known and noticed. Everybody. Everybody, when they, when they walk into a room, they hope that other people are going to be glad that they're there or that they're even going to notice their presence, be glad to see them. And whether it's the person you're checking, like who's checking you out at the grocery store, they're quietly hoping you're going to acknowledge their humanity at the very least. Or whether it's the homeless person on the off-ramp by the highway or your next-door neighbor or that new person in the church, everyone wants to be treated as a human being. Everybody wants to be noticed and dignified in this most basic of ways. And Jesus gives us a simple opportunity to acknowledge the humanity of other people. And it's just to greet them, to greet those people who are outside of your circles. Everybody wants to be known. Everybody wants to be noticed. Everybody has a birthday that they hope other people remember. Susan, go forth. Happy birthday to you. Everybody wants to be known. Everybody wants to be noticed. And Jesus, as we train and we build up this capacity to love others, ultimately by loving our enemy, by learning to notice and to greet the people who are outside of our immediate circle. I've been trying to sharpen my greetings. Uh, my, my standard greeting is, hey, how you doing? Hey, good to see you. That's it. But what I'm learning about myself is that is very much autopilot for me. That I'm a guy who can get lost in my head, and so I can feign noticing other people. But I'm not really seeing them. And so the, hey, how you doing kind of greetings, kind of responses, I don't think get at the heart of what Jesus is talking about. A greeting in the first century uh, uh, Roman world for, for Jewish people would be to, to extend God's peace, shalom. In the, in the Arabic world, salam alaikum. You're extending the peace of God. It's, it's a, a more deliberate greeting. One of the things that I've been practicing, Emily and I have been doing this with our kids, and I'm trying to do it with other people too, is to try to recover a sincere usage of the, of the phrase, God bless you. Uh, it's, it's like something you do when people sneeze. It was on Seinfeld. God bless you. Why do we say that? I've been trying to recover a sincere use of God bless you because I want God to bless you. Like, I, the, the people who come to our church or the people who walk down our street, like, I want the posture of my heart to be in noticing this human being. God, would you bless them? So maybe I say, hey, how you doing? Maybe I say, it's good to see you, but also to, like, to look in their face, to connect with this person and say, it's really good to see you. God bless you guys. And to recover, to train my heart as a sarcastic person, which I really am, to train my heart in sincerity, to be able to say, I see you, God bless you. And I'll tell you this, when someone comes to our church, maybe it's in the year 2025 that we can regather in person, who knows? When someone comes to our, our church, to a worship service for the first time, the only thing that will matter to them in evaluating whether they come back is if anybody treated them as a human being. If anybody greeted them, if anybody said in their actions, in their attitude, in their spirit, by inviting them into their friend group, hey, I see you. I notice you. And the crazy thing and the scary thing is is that people may ultimately sour not only on our church but on God when we blow it in this department. When we fail to do this most basic of commands of Jesus and just greet those who are outside of our immediate circle. And that begins to, to demonstrate the stakes of our obedience even in low-level interactions with greetings with people that we don't uh, like really know very well. 
The conversation about our growth toward maturity and obedience to the teaching of Jesus is not just about us like clipping on schedule and getting good marks as a disciple. It's, it's ultimately about something more than self-realization. In the end, our growth and our obedience to Jesus is for the sake of others. It's for the benefit of others. It fulfills this higher level purpose of affirming for people that there's a heavenly Father that loves them. And they know there's a heavenly Father because they see the children of God acting in this this big-hearted way, operating with a muchness of spirit. And because there's a person like that, maybe there's a God like that, and maybe I don't have to throw in the towel just yet. Maybe, just maybe, there's a God who loves me and has a plan for my life. Teresa of Avila said this. She says, Christ has no body now on earth but yours. I would say, but y'all's, the church. No hands but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ must look out on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless his people. God wants to do this work of extending the hospitality and the kindness and the reconciliation of God through us and beginning to just notice and show kindness to and loving the people outside of our circle, but even extending to the person with whom we have a strained or a broken relationship. The person you hate, the person whose name makes your blood boil, the person whose existence you've tried to erase from your mental hard drive. We do all of this because we remember how God has loved us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because we do not want to be like the unforgiving servant who like, celebrates our own forgiveness of sins but will not forgive the sins of others, the wrongs of others, we want to mirror the generosity and the forgiveness of God. And this requires the work of the Holy Spirit, which puts us back on our knees recognizing we are the poor in spirit. We are the spiritually malnourished who need the grace of God to lift us up, to equip us, and to transform us to live as Sermon on the Mount people. Would you pray with me, uh, wherever you are? As we just enter like a spirit of prayer, I want to ask you a couple of questions to prod you to have a conversation with the Lord. When we talk about enemies, when we talk about the person with whom you have a strained relationship, there's a name that comes to mind immediately. Just whisper it. Say it. Who's the name? You've acknowledged that to the Lord and to yourself. I want to ask you this. If you're thinking about the relationship between grace and growth, Where are you resisting or actively working against God's invitation of growth in your life? Some of you may like kind of resting on on your laurels or even kind of exploiting the grace of God because you've not heeded this invitation toward growth and maturity. Where are you resisting? Why are you resisting? Will you surrender today? Others of you do not need to be instructed about responsibility and you beat yourself up for not living into your complete identity, where are you resisting God's grace? It's a sin just like resisting this growth. 
It's a gift, just like the gift of grace that God wants to give to everyone. He wants to give it to you, too. Where are you resisting grace, and why are you resisting grace, and will you invite it in today? How is the Lord inviting you to respond to His Word today? I want to ask you this, too. Who's the person that you used to pray for, and you've just given up because it was a lost cause praying for them? Or your own posture toward them felt like a lost cause to move toward love? Would you ask the Spirit of God again to resurrect your desire for reconciliation? And then the last question I would ask you is this. How can we appropriate this teaching of Jesus missionally? So you'd say that you're not persecuted. How can you pray on behalf of those who are? I think about my brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who today are, are, have had to flee their homes, who are living in fear of persecution because their government or because a group of people uh, hates the fact that they proclaim Jesus as Lord. They may feel like they're being hunted down. How can you pray on behalf of the persecuted? How can you pray on behalf of victims of systemic injustice? I think about things that have happened, come to light in our world in the last week. How can we pray and intercede on behalf of, of those who are victims and those who are persecuted and praying against systems of injustice that in dismantling them, God would recover the hearts of those people who are, who are uh, causing them to be perpetuated? Let's pray together. Lord, would you do this work of resurrection in our hearts? From the most, mon from the most like, like small of offenses to the most gross and terrible of them. Would you do a work of resurrection in our hearts that people might see that we belong to the family of God and the way that we strive to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Would you give us the grace to want to want to pray for them, to want to want to obey Jesus' teaching? Would you help us just today as we're walking in our neighborhood, as we're beginning to go out in public, like to see the humanity around us, the individuals made in the image of God, and may we begin to train ourselves in enemy love by sincerely greeting and honoring and blessing the human beings around us. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be Sermon on the Mount Christians for the sake of others in our homes and in Tulsa, in our country, and around the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.